please welcome Maggie Nelson. Thank you. I'm so glad to be here. Hi, everybody. I haven't really seen who's here yet, so I'm like checking out Tiffany. Um, I'm so happy to be reading what to me is uh, hopefully you know the LA. It's just it's like the launch book party. You know whatever. Amy, it's, you know, Amy's a uh, book uh, Tender Points, which is so fantastic, and um, I just feel really honored to be asked to read for it. And I think you know just um, I told her before, but uh, I had the really just happenstance occurrence to read her book in manuscript while I was in the waiting room to see a doctor for a chronic pain issue. <laughs> and uh, it was very consoling and very fierce and very original and um, very smart. And so um, I felt immediately very thankful for all those things. And you guys should all buy a copy tonight. So I was trying to think what I wanted to read from, um, is this all good, like sound-wise? Yeah? Okay, cool. I just was, I'm going to read a little bit, not a lot, from... Um, this book, The Argonauts, that came out in May. And uh, I don't know, in Amy's honor, I was just trying to find a kind of doctor-oriented part of the book, so I found one that I think fills that, uh, <laughs> fills that get, uh, I don't know what it is, a subgenre of autobiography, um, interfacing with medical establishments. So um, this book, I don't know, it's, um, it's, it's about a lot of things. One of them is a big mouthful. I can't say a lot myself. Sodomitical maternity. Um, queer family, other things, so uh, language uh, possibility, limitation. But this part's just kind of from the middle. I call the book Auto Theory. You can make it that what you will. And uh, this is just from the center. So every other week of my pregnant fall, my so-called golden trimester, I traveled alone around the country on behalf of my book, The Art of Cruelty. Quickly I realized that I would need to trade in my prideful self-sufficiency for a willingness to ask for help. In lifting my bags in and out of overhead compartments, up and down subway steps, and so on, I received this help, which I recognized as great kindness. On more than one occasion, a service member in the airport literally saluted me as I shuffled past. Their friendliness was nothing short of shocking. You are holding the future. One must be kind to the future or at least a certain image of the future which I apparently appeared able to deliver and our military ready to defend. So this is the seduction of normalcy, I thought, as I smiled back, compromised and radiant. But the pregnant body in public is also obscene. It radiates a kind of smug autoeroticism. An intimate relation is going on, one that is visible to others but that decisively excludes them. Service members may salute Strangers may offer their congratulations or their seats, but this privacy, this bond, can also irritate. It especially irritates the anti-abortionists who would prefer to pry apart the twofer earlier and earlier, 24 weeks, 20 weeks, 12 weeks, 6 weeks. The sooner you can pry the twofer apart, the sooner you can dispense with one constituent of the relationship, the woman with rights. For all the years I didn't want to be pregnant, the years I spent harshly deriding the breeders, I secretly felt pregnant women were smug in their complaints. Here they were, sitting on top of the cake of the culture, getting all the kudos for doing exactly what women are supposed to do, and yet still they felt unsupported and discriminated against. Give me a break. Then when I wanted to be pregnant but I wasn't, I felt pregnant women had the cake I wanted and they were busy bitching about the icing. 
I was wrong on all counts, imprisoned as I was and as I still am by my own hopes and fears. I am not trying to fix that wrongness here. I'm just trying to let it hang out. Place me now like a pregnant cutout doll at a prestigious New York University, giving a talk on my book on cruelty. During the Q&A, a well-known playwright raises his hand and says, I can't help but notice that you're with child. <laughs> Which leads me to the question, how did you handle working with all this dark material, sadism, masochism, cruelty, violence, and so on, in your condition? <laughs> ah, yes, I think. Digging a knee into the podium. Leave it to the old patrician white guy to call the lady speaker back to her body so no one misses the spectacle of the wild oxymoron, the pregnant woman who thinks. Which is really just a pumped up version of that more general oxymoron, a woman who thinks. As if anyone was missing this spectacle anyway. As if a similar scene didn't recur at every location of my so-called book tour. As if when I myself see pregnant women in the public sphere, there isn't a kind of drumming in my mind that threatens to drown out all else. Pregnant, pregnant, pregnant. Perhaps because the soul or the souls in utero is pumping out static. Static that disrupts our usual perception of an other as a single other. The static of facing not one, but also not two. During irritating Q&As, I feel bad like all these Q&A complaints right before we have a Q&A. I love Q&A. Okay. During irritating Q&As, bumpy takeoffs and landings and frightful faculty. I love faculty meetings, too. And frightful faculty (laughs) meetings. I placed my hands on my risen belly and attempted silent communion with the being spinning in the murk. Wherever I went, there went the baby, too. Hello, New York. Hello, bathtub. And yet babies have a will of their own, which becomes visible the first time mine sticks out a limb and makes a tent of my belly. During the night, he gets into weird positions, forcing me to plead, move along, little baby, get your foot off my lungs. And if you're tracking a problem, as I was, you may have to watch the baby's body develop in ways that might harm him, with nothing you can do about it. Powerlessness, finitude, endurance. You are making the baby, but not directly. You are responsible for his welfare, but unable to control the core elements. You must allow him to unfurl. You must feed his unfurling. You must hold him. But he will unfurl as his cells are programmed to unfurl. You cannot reverse an unfolding structural or chromosomal disturbance by ingesting the right organic tea. Why do we have to freak why do we have to measure his kidneys and freak out about their size every week if we've already decided we're not going to take him out early or do anything to treat him until after he's born? I ask the doctor rolling the sticky ultrasound shaft over my belly for seemingly the thousandth time. Well, most mothers want to know as much as possible about the condition of their babies, she says, avoiding my eyes. Truth be told, when we first started trying to conceive, I had hoped to be done with my cruelty project and on to something cheerier, so the baby might have more upbeat accompaniment in utero. But I needn't have worried. Not only did getting pregnant take much longer than I'd wanted it to, but pregnancy itself taught me how irrelevant such a hope was. Babies grow in a helix of hope and fear. Gestating draws one but deeper into the spiral. It is not cruel in there, but it is dark. I would have explained this to the playwright, but he had already left the room. 
after the Q&A at this event, back to the Q&A, a woman came up to me and told me that she had just gotten out of a relationship with a woman who'd wanted her to hit her during sex. She was so fucked up, she said. She came from a background of abuse. I had to tell her I couldn't do that to her. I couldn't be that person. She seemed to be asking me for a species of advice. So I told her the only thing that occurred to me. <clears throat> I didn't know this other woman. So that all that seemed clear to me was that their perversities were not compatible. Even identical genital acts mean very different things to different people, Eve Sedgwick. This is a crucial point to remember, and also a difficult one. It reminds us that there is difference right where we might be looking for and expecting communion. At 28 weeks, I was hospitalized for some bleeding. While discussing a possible placental issue, one doctor quipped, well, we don't want that, because while that would likely be okay for the baby, it might not be okay for you. By pressing a bit, I figured out that she meant, in this particular scenario, the baby would likely live, but that I might not. Now, I loved my hard-won baby-to-be fiercely, but I was in no way ready to bow out of this veil of tears for his survival. Nor do I think those who love me would have looked too kindly on such a decision, a decision that doctors elsewhere on the globe are mandated to make, and that the die-hard anti-abortionists are going for here. This is like in honor of the Pope, I guess. <laughs> I, love, I love the Pope. Um, I do. I love Q&As. I love the Pope. Okay. Once I was riding in a cab to JFK, passing by that amazingly overpacked cemetery along the BQE, Calvary, my cab driver gazed out wistfully at the headstones packed onto the hill and said, many of those graves are the graves of children. Likely so, I returned with a measure of fatigue trepidation, the result of years of fielding unwanted monologues from cab drivers about how women should live or behave. It's a good thing when children die, he said. They go straight to paradise because they are the innocents. During my sleepless night under placental observation at the hospital, this monologue came back to me. And I wondered if, instead of working to fulfill the dream of worldwide and forced childbearing, abortion foes could instead get excited about all the innocent unborn souls going straight from the abortion table to paradise, no detour necessary into this den of iniquity, which eventually makes horrors of us all. <laughs> Not to mention Social Security recipients. <laughs> Could that get them off our backs once and for all? Never in my life have I felt more pro-choice than when I was pregnant, and never in my life have I understood more thoroughly and been more excited about a life that began at conception. Feminists may never make a bumper sticker that says it's a choice and a child, but of course that's what it is, and we know it. We don't need to wait for George Carlin to spill the beans. We're not idiots. We understand the stakes. Sometimes we choose death. Harry and I sometimes joke that women should get way beyond 20 weeks, maybe even up to two days after birth, to decide if they want to keep the baby. <laughs> joke, okay? I have saved many mementos for Iggy, my son, but I admit to tossing away an envelope of about 25 ultrasound photos of his in utero penis and testicles, which a chirpy blonde ponytailed technician printed out for me every time I had an ultrasound. Boy, he's sure proud of his stuff, she'd say before jabbing print, or he really likes to show it off. <laughs> Just let him wheel around in his sack for Christ's sake, I thought, grimly folding the genital triptychs in my wallet week after week. <laughs> 
Let him stay oblivious for the first and last time, perhaps, to the task of performing a self for others, to the fact that we develop even in utero in response to a flow of projections and reflections ricocheting off us. Eventually, we call that snowball a self, an argo. I guess the cheery way of looking at this snowball would be to say, subjectivity is keenly relational and it is strange. We are for another. We are by virtue of another. In my final weeks, I walked every day in the Arroyo Seco and listed aloud all the people who were waiting on earth to love Iggy, hoping that the promise of their love would be enough to lure him out. That's it. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Amy Berkowitz, uh, her work has appeared in Doozy, Tech Sound, Where Eagles Dare, and Vita's Reports from the Field series. She lives in San Francisco, but we're very happy to have her here tonight. Please welcome Amy Berkowitz. Thank you. Hi. Thank you for coming. Um, It is an honor to read with you, Maggie. That was beautiful. Um, Can everyone hear me? Cool. Um, So I just want to say that um, one of the things that Tender Points talks about is sexual violence. So if anyone is sensitive to that, just a heads up that I am going to read sections that involve that. I'm going to start from the beginning and then skip around. When I was a music journalist... I wrote that the best noise music venues are places where you walk in and think, someone could actually die here tonight. The feeling that something real is at stake. Noise music immerses the listener in an intense and sometimes terrifying sonic experience. And without environmental cues to confirm that terror, the effect loses its power. In revolutionary letter number one, Diane de Prima writes, I have just realized that the stakes are myself. I'm looking for someplace dire enough to write this. I want to feel like I could actually die here tonight. When I lived in Ann Arbor, I used to bike nine miles on an empty highway to see noise shows in Ypsilanti. The Pleasure Dome was a dark, unfinished basement with a concrete floor and low ceilings. Cigarettes and synths and sweat and beer. I want to write this there. Every morning, I wake up feeling like I was run over by a truck. I feel like I've been hit by a bus. I wake up feeling like I got whiplash. I wake up feeling like I slept on the floor. I wake up feeling like I've been chewed up and spit out. Multiple alarms, and I always feel like I've been run over by a truck. The Sphinx is riddle. What goes on four legs at dawn, two legs at noon, and three legs in the evening? I don't particularly like riddles. But then again, neither did travelers passing through Thebes. They didn't try to solve the Sphinx's riddle because they craved the intellectual challenge. They tried to solve it because the Sphinx killed anyone who didn't. So I don't like riddles. And yet, here I am, obsessed with solving a riddle of my own, the riddle of my body. Why exactly am I constantly in pain? Like the Sphinx's riddle, mine is not a brain teaser. It's not Sudoku. It's not something you do on the bus to make the ride feel shorter. Like her riddle, mine has a greater urgency. In The Culture of Pain, David B. Morris criticizes medical literature for its tradition of approaching pain as a riddle to be answered, a challenge to be met, a puzzle to be solved. 
He rejects the language of conquest and asks us instead to consider in what sense pain might be regarded not as a puzzle, but as a mystery. While pain can be solved with just one or two missing pieces, while a puzzle can be solved with just one or two missing pieces, pain is much more complicated. And talking about pain, especially chronic pain, as if it has an easy answer, can be irresponsibly deceptive. Morris suggests that by understanding pain as a mystery, we can respect its complexity and recognize the alienating experience of living in pain. Mysteries, he writes, introduce us to unusual states of being. Mysteries disturb the world we take for granted. An invisible illness with uncertain causes and imprecise diagnostic criteria, fibromyalgia is largely defined by its mystery. And yet, when the onset of this pain follows a traumatic event, as it often does, it's hard not to understand that trauma as a certain kind of key, to hold that key in a palm made sweaty by too much coffee, to never put it down for the feeling that, at any moment, it could completely unlock the mystery and solve the problem of your pain. Two at the bottom of the neck, just above the collarbone. Two just below the center of each collarbone. One on the crease inside each elbow. Two more on the inside of each knee. On the back of the body, two at the bottom of the neck. One above each shoulder blade and just inside each shoulder blade. Two on either side of the lower spine. Two more on the outer part of each hamstring. In order to be diagnosed, the patient must experience discomfort in at least 11 of 18 tender points designated by the American College of Rheumatology. I agree that pain is something more complex and unknowable than a puzzle. And yet, when it comes to the mystery of my pain, I can't resist the impulse to solve it. I have all these pieces, and I can't stop my hands from wanting to jam them together until some sense emerges. When I think about my clues, they're inside a wicker basket that I'm carrying through the woods. It's nighttime. It's quiet. I realize that, for some reason, I am Little Red Riding Hood. Why? I should be thinking of Nancy Drew or Harriet the Spy. Some story about a girl detective, not about a girl waylaid in the woods. But to solve this kind of mystery, it seems, you need to walk alone into a forest. You need to walk until you meet a wolf. Throughout pop culture, Little Red Riding Hood's wolf is read as sexual predator, from Sam the Sham's seductive canine to Susan Brownmiller's rapist. I have a wolf in my story, but he will not interrupt my walk through the forest, which is to say he's already interrupted it. He's the reason I'm here, sorting out the aftermath, which is to say the wolf is eternally interrupting my walk through the forest, emerging from behind the same tree again and again to block my path. Imagine it repeating like a gif. My little red riding hood has no granny in the woods. She has no treats in her basket. Her basket is for gathering clues. A handful of fur or a whisker she yanks from his face. Could be DNA tested later. Acutely traumatized people are generally dominated by the sympathetic fight-flight system. They tend to suffer from flashbacks and racing hearts. Poetry fails me because it's not written plainly. Its oblique nature aligns too closely with the slippery and unreliable speech that women have been associated with since ancient Greece. In The Gender of Sound, Anne Carson writes, 
Woman as a species is frequently said to lack the ordering principle of sophrosyne. Sophrosyne is a masculine virtue, the use of moderation and self-control in speaking. While men speak with order, Carson observes that the women of classical literature are a species given to disorderly and uncontrolled outflow of sound, to shrieking, wailing, sobbing, shrill lament, loud laughter, screams of pain or pleasure, and eruptions of raw emotion in general. That's why I so firmly want prose here. Sentences, periods, male certainty. These are facts. No female vocal fry, no uptalk, no question about what I tell you, no metaphor. Go ahead, fact check. Did I stutter? Fuck off. I'm writing about the violence of patriarchal culture. I'm writing about the uneven balance of power in female patient male doctor relationships. I'm aware of a certain home team advantage, and I will not dare write this in anything that can't pass for straight masculine prose. It's not that this isn't a creature feminine, but it's a creature feminine en homme. The story of my pain is not an easy story to tell. And I'm not talking about the emotional difficulty of telling it. I mean, the plot itself is confusing. Trauma is nonlinear. There are flashbacks and flash forwards. And my story is a story about forgetting. Forgetting is one of the main characters. In fact, he may be the hero. Forgetting swoops down on a rope to rescue me right after my rape. He holds me with his free arm as we swing back to safety, saying, you can't handle this right now, but you'll remember when you're 23, and you'll have better psychological defenses then, and a good therapist. If forgetting is the hero of the story, who is memory? And what happens to memory in the end? There's a This American Life segment about a couple that's furnishing their new apartment. They buy a table on eBay at a very reasonable price. When it arrives, they realize they've accidentally ordered dollhouse furniture. The table is two and a half inches, not two and a half feet tall, smaller than most of the things they were planning to put on it. This dollhouse table feels familiar. My memory of that day is in miniature. Although it's very clear, it's about two and a half inches tall and stuck inside my head. I can't show it to anybody. I can't locate a corresponding full-size memory out in the world. And I can't even tell you what day that day was. In 2012, somebody decided to figure out exactly which day the song It Was a Good Day was written about. By analyzing Ice Cube's lyrics, Donovan Strain ultimately concluded that the only day when Yo! MTV Raps was on the air the weather was clear and smogless in L.A., beepers were commercially available, and the Lakers beat the Supersonics was January 20th, 1992. I worry that I'm starting to fetishize this project of resurrecting the past. Actually, this is surprisingly concise. Start when I'm 24, then flashback, literally, to age 10, or so, I can never pin down exactly when to the rape that it took me five years to call rape. 1993, raped, without knowing the word rape, so it was filed in a stack of other memories and fastened there with shame. Rape faded like a normal memory, only not. 2007, it came back in a sick vision that looked too bright and real, like a photo illustration on a cake. Saw the doctor, saw the room, saw the window. Next morning, woke up in pain. 
As I read more about the history of invisible illness, I'm surprised and amused to diagnose myself with hysteria. They're just nasty, fat women who want to collect disability checks. Doing stuff makes me tired. Give me some money and or drugs. Lazy-ass slugs who sit at home and watch Judge Judy while the rest of the world works for a living. 71% of them are fat women who don't ever get off their ass. Sorry if you don't like facts. Anyone who can read an internet article and say ow 11 times can have it. In The Body in Pain, Elaine Scarry describes pain's essential inexpressibility. For the person in pain, so incontestably and unnegotiably present is it that having pain may come to be thought of as the most vibrant example of what it is to have certainty, while for the other person, it is so elusive that hearing about pain may exist as the primary model of what it is to have doubt. Fibromyalgia is largely defined by a lack of visible symptoms or identifying lab tests. The only diagnostic criteria are the frustratingly vague tender points. Press here and I'll tell you if it hurts. Now press here. Now press here. All I have to do is tell you. All you have to do is believe what I tell you. I have to deal with these nutcases at work and I flat out call them fakers to their face. They need to get up off their lard asses and get a job. They're just whiny people who love to be sick. I knew a woman with it. She was miserable and had a whole MySpace dedicated to the constant pain. At the Vital Forms Symposium in 2013, Melissa Bezeo asked questions. Why people who are sick are also looked at as waste products in society? Why people, especially women, especially sick women, do not want to draw too much attention to themselves. What does it mean to talk about yourself? Welcome to the MySpace of my constant pain. I'm 21 years old, and I feel like I'm 50. I'm 50, I feel like I'm 90. I'm only 22, and I feel like I'm 60 or 70 years old. I feel like I'm in my 80s, but I'm only 46. People in my life may think I'm exaggerating, but I'm truly in pain. To Google yellow wallpaper and find yellow wallpaper. I mean, like, swatches of it. <laughs> Hysteria, writes Morris, was a convenient diagnostic box for imprisoning women who male doctors were unable to cure. Today, doctors' insistence on the mysterious, unknowable nature of fibromyalgia functions as a similarly misogynistic tactic trapping female patients in a state of uncertainty where it's impossible to assert themselves or be heard as an authority on their own experience. Because of this notorious ambiguity, fibromyalgia is often misunderstood as nothing more than a one-size-fits-all diagnosis invented to pacify female patients with no visible symptoms. And indeed, it is sometimes misused this way. Even musician Kathleen Hanna, who was ultimately diagnosed with Lyme disease and who actively promotes awareness of invisible illness, has described fibromyalgia in this context. I had a doctor who dumped me in the fibromyalgia category, and I just got up and left. I was just like, fuck you, I don't have fibromyalgia. That's just, to me, from what I've learned, it's a medical diagnosis dumping ground for women. They just dump you in there when they don't know what you have. There's another similarity between the two diagnoses. 
While hysteria is perhaps better remembered for dramatic symptoms like tics and convulsions, chronic pain was also a defining characteristic. In his 1859 treatise on hysteria, physician Paul Burkett observed that pain in the muscles is so common that there is not a single woman with this neurosis who does not have some muscle pain over the course of the illness. And a third. In an 1896 report called The Etiology of Hysteria, Freud concluded, at the bottom of every case of hysteria, there are one or more occurrences of premature sexual experience. As Judith Herman explains in Trauma and Recovery, he recognized the bizarre symptoms of hysteria as disguised communications about sexual abuse in childhood. Compare this to Dr. Ginevra Liptan's observation that a strong association has been shown between childhood trauma or abuse and the later development of fibromyalgia. The police asked if I was lying. The police said he was a good boy. The police said I was making it up. The police asked me why I was alone there. The police kept yelling at me. The police denied my request for a female detective, which I later found out was violating procedure. The police did nothing. This cruel abuse of power is sickeningly common, and yet there's this part of me that wishes my own rape had at least had a chance at something that might pass for justice. But when a ghost rapes you, there's no event to report, no one to report it to. It's up to you to perform your own cruel interrogation. I asked myself if I was lying. I told myself I was making it up. I asked myself, why were we alone in the exam room? I asked myself, why were we alone in the exam room? I told myself, maybe what he did really was normal, and maybe I'm a pervert for remembering it wrong. I kept yelling at myself. I did nothing. Less than a year after he published The Ideology of Hysteria, Freud repudiated his findings. He was too disturbed by their radical suggestion. If every case of hysteria was linked to abuse, then untold numbers of respectable bourgeois men in Vienna were implicated as sexual predators. To resolve this cognitive dissonance, Freud revised his theory to say that hysteria patients were fabricating their memories of abuse. A couple of weeks ago, I found out that a man I used to date raped someone I know. The next morning, I woke up from a dream about him. The morning after that, I woke up crying. Hearing about this rape reminded me of my own rape, and it reminded a lot of my friends about their own rapes, too. In King Kong Theory, Virginie Despont asks, how shall we explain the fact that you hardly ever hear the other side of the story? I raped so-and-so on this day, in these circumstances. After learning about the recent rape, I find myself in a hypervigilant state. I don't feel safe. My boyfriend assures me that I'm safe, but what he doesn't understand is that this, there's this other kind of knowing that you're safe that's far away from logic or present reality. I am not being raped, have not been raped in 20 years, will hopefully not ever be raped again. But I am also continuously being raped. The trauma has lodged in my brain and my body. I'm so used to the pain. It's part of me. It feels like just another body part, and always clenching in my shoulders, neck, back, legs, hands. I'm 31, but I feel like I'm 60. 
People in my life may think I'm exaggerating, but I am always in pain. Every morning I wake up feeling like I was run over by a truck. I feel like I've been hit by a bus. I wake up stiff like a coyote with rheumatism. I wake up in the woods on a bed of dried moss. I have a doctor, I have a wolf, I have an ex. Interrupting me, stepping out from behind the same tree to block my path. Invisible, impossible to prove. Whether or not you believe me, imagine it repeating like a gif. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you both. Um, at this time, we'd like to give the, uh, the opportunity for the audience to ask questions of our writers. Come on out. Okay. <laughs> well, I guess the question I, I was curious about is sort of the honesty of your work and um, how do you sort of get to that place where you can um, write what you write? Wow, okay, here we go. Um, uh, me first. Um, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I'm, so how do you get to the place where you're you feel honest, honest, right? Where your writing is honest. I mean, honesty is really interesting because um, uh, you know you can think you're being really honest in your writing, like really honest in your writing, and you read it the next morning and you're like, that is a bunch of self-delusional, you know, crap. You know, so I think that it's really great. I mean, I think I think writing. I don't advocate that it can make you like this kind of writing maybe similar things that both Amy and I are doing in these two different projects um, like it's not like it makes you a more you know honest person per se but I really do feel like through cutting the layers through my own bullshit seeing it draft after draft um, I eventually come to something like if there's any little like twinklings, okay, twinklings in any of my books that I feel like aren't totally honest or that I feel like have more bravado in them than honesty, I always can see it, like like when I'm skimming through it and I just don't like that part anymore, you know, like it's really, they really are blazing to me, so I really feel like it's a, it's quite a process, but Amy. Okay. So I'm answering how to write honest writing? Is <laughs> that the question? Um, I can speak to you for this project. Um, just like a craft thing that I wound up doing was using a huge Google Doc and writing in there. And then I could just scroll down and keep writing. And I could. it really like freed me up to write really disturbing things about my own memories of abuse and even less intense things that it's hard for me to like be open about even in a Word doc. Just it, this endless scrolling thing and I could just hide from it. So that was one way to be honest. <laughs> Um, thank you so much for what you do to shift the culture through the word you're writing. Both of you are full painted dent in the standard narrative. Oh, sorry. Oh, really oh. oh, okay, cool. Okay, I'll do that. I always wonder about this idea of trauma. They always say the onset of cancer, the onset of some horrible disease is always subsequent to a traumatic event. We live in an age of alarm. How could any moment not be preceded by trauma? And it seems almost like cancer being blamed on your own genes rather than the toxins or any collective political action we could take to correct these diseases. It's always turned inward. So what do you do with the doctor when he says, you know, you have cancer. You had a traumatic event lately. You know, what do we think about trauma preceding all these illnesses? And, um, you know, I just wanted to ask you guys because you guys are really... Oh, I'm getting past. Oh, yeah. yeah, no, I mean, um, 
So what was it? The, um, what's the Susan Sontag book that I'm thinking of? AIDS is metaphor, illness is metaphor. Um, have you read that? Yeah, well, I mean, she's a good answer. But outside of that, I mean, first of all, if a doctor tells you something that you find useless and disrespectful, find a new doctor. Like, I, I know that sounds obvious, but, like, I would like to say that all to you. There's a lot of bad doctors. Um, but, yeah, I don't know. Like, I, I think, like Susan Sontag, I agree that considering illness as a metaphor is often not useful. And that's kind of all I have to say about that. I work very hard to get in, in charge of all my medical doctors. Yeah. <laughs> Nurses over doctors, too. Has the writing changed your physical health at all? Has it had any impact on you? Good, bad? Um, I think for a while, while I, oh, should I repeat the question? Yes, Sorry, um, has the writing affected my physical health at all, good or bad? While I was in the depths of writing it, I think I felt more pain. Um, and now I'm just about the same as I was. <laughs> Yeah. Um, can you check your Yeah, cool, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Amy, what would you call the genre of ideas that you are working And then maybe you can also talk a little bit about auto Sure, I mean, that, that term, I don't know, whenever I publish a book, you know, I'm always kind of looking for a, a genre designation that, feels like good enough to please an editor or publisher, you know, but that like I would prefer just to not call it anything, you know. Um, so like I've published books like, there's always like the subtitle question, like if you don't want to be like, you know, such and such, you know, a novel in verse or something like, so I've titled books like The Art of Cruelty or Reckoning or um, Jane a Murder, you know, trying to find those things. So, so auto theory is kind of like, it was kind of like a, you know, I mean, I was glad I threw it out with this book because then it just obviated the whole memoir conversation and the whole theory conversation, and I could just put the two things together. And but it was also because uh, Beatrice Preciado wrote this book, Testo Junkie, that I read about I don't know maybe like three quarters of the way into writing this book, and and she now he kind of started uh, that book just des- describing that book as a work of auto theory, and that that more specifically vacillates between um, theoretical chapters about. The the pharmacopornographical era in which we are embedded and a kind of autobiographical um, body experiment with testosterone. And uh, my book does, doesn't uh, doesn't strobe as obviously as like one chapter theory, one chapter autobiography, but but um, but but the anecdotes, you know, kind of similar to Amy's book in a way. They're like uh, they 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 strobe they strobe a little bit. So it seemed like um, a good phrase. I mean, it's a phrase that I I believe just derives from 70s feminist criticism. Um, you know, basic. Feminism 101 attempt to put the mind back with the body, you know, in scholarship, and um, you know this book is like deeply an homage to um, that tradition. So it seemed right. Um, kind of a boring answer. I think it's, I've just been calling it a lyric essay. Um, I think it has some affinities to like, new narrative writing. Um, yeah. Okay. Um, my my question is for both of you, and it's about. Um, See if I can ask it in a way that makes sense to both of you. So I'm I'm interested about the way that you write um, about 
the conversations that happen both with doctors and offices, but also, let's say, Q&As, where there's this discourse that's being put on you about your body, whether it's illness or pregnancy, and, and the way in which, in your writing, you're in conversation with that language that's being kind of done to you by whether it's doctors, as you talk about patriarchal culture, or whoever whoever it is that's using that language. I'm curious for with both of you, when you're in those moments, like with you, with you when you were with doctors and the language you're quoting from the internet, how much do you interact publicly with those people or writing on, on these comments or engaging with your doctor, do you talk back? Do you <laughs> shut that down? Do you, how aggressive are you in, because I, I, I think about this all the time, about I have conversations with doctors where I find myself aggressive mm-hmm. now in responses and I, I don't always know what to do right in those moments of real life conversations because mm-hmm. we have them in our writing in our heads mm-hmm. and here's how much you have those out loud people mm-hmm. uh, well, no go ahead <laughs> I mean I I, tough are you? <laughs> I do advocate for myself as a patient especially I don't know if this excerpt made it clear but I was raped by my pediatrician when I was 10 so I have a lot of like going to the doctor is really triggering for me so I, unless I advocate for myself completely, I can't be there. So it's kind of an easy decision for me. Yeah, I mean, sometimes I think maybe what you're picking up on, hi, <laughs> sometimes I think what maybe you're picking up on is, a, I think this is true sometimes for me, that, you know, writing can be a place where, you know, you have the your better thought or come back or, you know, like what I would have said to the playwright, but he'd already left the room, you know. So it's like, I think sometimes that happens, you know. And, and I think, you know, related to, like, issues of coming out in a variety of ways like you know whether you're coming out is whatever you're whatever the heck you're coming out is like I think that you know you you know a lot has been written about how like you don't come out once you know you have to choose all day long what what you want to come out as and who you want to come out to so you know it's not like I'm going to tell the blonde ponytailed you know kind of emissary of gender binaries and you know at doing my ultrasound you know like you know I'm sorry but in my family we're not into that you know it's like you know I'm kind of like let her have her moment she's having a good day is making her happy she's smiling you know it's like you make your decisions based on you know but it's not you know I'm all like harsh or mellow but but you know certainly I'm like I'll write about that later but I just think it's very I, I think it's very like contextual you know, in that way. And that because I do think a lot of us are going through the day as emissaries of ideology, all of us, you know, a lot of it we, we know not. And we get irritated by inter- interchanges with people, not knowing that somebody went home and probably is, you know, cogitating on something really fucked up that we said to them that day. <laughs> no, I mean, really, about something else. I mean, if you just listen to, like, you complaining to your partner or your whoever friend at night about all, whatever happened to you that day, like, you know, everyone does it. So I think it's really, um, like, I don't like writing... I mean, this is kind of related to, like, the honest part. Like, I think sometimes in first drafts of things I've written, like, one of the main things I feel like I have to get out is, like, I like to rant, but 
it's not interesting to be the person who always knows better, you know? Like, that's just not an interesting place to live or to write from at all. So um, that's like a, that's that would be like a very typical first layer of, I think I'm being honest because I'm saying what I really felt, but really I'm just re-establishing or, you know, reconsolidating my position as the person who knows, which doesn't really have to do with the unknowing that I think good writing uh, demands, you know? That makes sense. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.